When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG V20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win twenty-five grand. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants stores. Are the Wizards playing under their potential? How has Scott Brooks done so far in terms of installing his offense? Will the bench find a way to be productive in the near future? The only question left is, say it with me, you win. Sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. I am pleased to bring on Jay Michael, who is the Wizards and NBA insider for CSN Mid-Atlantic. And uh, Jay, I'm glad you can join us today post-election, and um, I want to talk about some Wizards stuff, so let's jump into it. What do you say? Sounds like a plan. <laughs> so, you know, I've been going through the offense a little bit this morning in preparation for this, and um I don't know. Before I even throw out what I'm seeing, I was wondering if you can give me some of your insights into what's going on with their offense and how what's working, what's not working. Well, offensively, I, you know, I, I see that times like Bradley Beal, I think, is attacking more off the dribble. I mean, that's been a thing that's been a primary focus of everybody coming into a, a max contract. So people want to see him putting the ball on the floor, attacking, um, attacking people and getting to the rim, getting to the free throw line where he can manufacture his offense which is the reason why he's never been a guy who averages 24, 25 points a game. He should be. I see him doing that a lot at times, and then there are long stretches where I still see him being indecisive against weaker defenders. But I also see there's not the kind of action on the weak side off ball for him. Uh, I don't see him doing a lot of screening so he can get free. Um and so I think there's times where they fall into those lulls and they become so dependent on pick and roll. If that doesn't work, the offense bogs down. And, of course, the second unit is a complete complete disaster for the most part. Uh, they can't even get into half-court offense. So I can't even evaluate the second unit properly, I believe, because they can't even get into sets. They're getting into sets 12 seconds left on the shot clock. They're getting a lot of shots late in the shot clock. They're four shots. They're contested shots, low percentage shooting. Therefore, you have a team that averages less than 100 points a game. You know, that's actually a great point because I was going through the lineups and, uh, and looking at the five-man data here. And what struck me the most was that the starters have played, you know, that group of Beal, Gortat, Morris, Porter, and Wall have played in five games for 115 minutes total. The second most fi- uh, played five-man lineup only has 22 minutes together in one game. 
And when yeah. you look at other teams, it's a lot, it's, it might be twice as much for the next most played five-man lineup, but not like five times uh, as much. So, like, what's, yeah. what can, we, what can uh, Coach Brooks do here to vary the lineups? I mean, that seems like the starting five is going to wear down pretty quick that way. Yeah, you would think so because you consider that John Wall's coming off of two knee surgeries, Bradley Beal with the injury history with his lower right leg. You don't want to wear those guys down. Here we are talking about the first month of the season, and they're logging a lot of minutes. Even Marching Gortat, who's had back tightness and issues, and he's over 30, is logging a lot of minutes in each game. Um, I think it goes back to the backcourt that you have behind Wall and, and Bradley Beal. You have Trey Burke who has more turnovers. He started out the season with more turnovers than assists. His first, I think, is four games. He had six turnovers and three assists. So can't get the team in the offense. And then you have Marcus Thornton, who plays with him in the backcourt. And that's just defensively, it's not the best backcourt. But then offensively, you have a lot of four shots uh, late in the shot clock. So what Scott Brooks has been, has been trying to do is he's been keeping a starter with that unit with the second unit, sometimes two starters, in order to try to get them over the hump. I thought the best way to potentially do it is maybe take a guy like Otto Porter, who's good at reading the floor, good at passing, doing a lot of things. Handle the ball a little bit. He's not really a two. uh, But you need a, a guy like that out on the floor with them in order to be able to succeed to help with the ball distribution. I just see that they can't get anything going um, and every shot they take is a long two or a very long three that's contested. And I, I'm not sure what Brooks can do uh, other than hope that Thomas Sadoransky comes around. And I think Sadoransky is going to be the answer long term to run that second unit. I think they're better. And I still think they're missing the shooters with the second unit to loosen things up. You know, I, what I've been noticing on the offensive end is, you know, one of the criticisms we had in OKC or that I had with, with OKC was a lot about Russell Westbrook. And as those years went by, I kind of had to temper that a little bit with saying, you know, this could very well be an offensive system issue as much as Russ or more than Russ. And I was anxious to see what was going to happen in Washington away from such megawatt stars where Brooks might have some more control over what they do on offense. And i got to tell you, all I'm seeing is a lot of straight pick and roll, just bring the ball up and let the big man run up and screen for wall, which while is, is effective at times, without any kind of side-to-side movement, the defense looks like they're just right in perfect position to guard that. And also, yeah. you know, an occasional floppy, very vanilla so I'm concerned because uh, is this a thing where Brooks didn't have enough time to install more of an offense, or is this sort of what he decided to ride with and hope for the best? I, I think this is what he's decided to ride with now. I asked him before a recent game about doing some more of that little flex action to get Bradley Beal a little bit more involved in the offense rather than standing stationary. And I saw a little bit of that in one of the games. I can't even recall which one it was, but – I went through one game, I think it was Toronto, where there was not one play other than an inbound play where Bradley Beal screened for anyone. So it was a pretty – it's hard to get him free when defenses are loading up so much to him that it's just not enough to get him free off of the ball. And then if you go to the second unit, um, Nick, he had uh, a pick-and-roll situation. They ran pick-and-rolls with Marcus Thornton and Jason Smith. That's not going to work. (laughs) Nobody's going to respect Jason Smith from the three-point line popping, and he's not mobile enough to catch the ball and finish at the rim in traffic. And Marcus Thornton is a low-efficiency shooter from deep. So it's – 
Uh, it, it's uh, again, I think Sadoransky helps there, but the shooting part of his game is going to be the last thing I think is going to come around, even though he has the IQ. I just don't see enough off ball movement. I see too much reliance on pick and roll. I couldn't agree with you more. That's why you still see in key situations, the end of the Memphis game, they have the final play. What does John Wall do? He brings the ball up. He dribbles out the clock. And then he tries to attack the basket and gets collapsed on by three guys, and the shot never has a prayer. No one moved the entire set. Four other guys stayed still. And, you know, I think if we were in OKC from the last five years, we would talk very similarly about that. Uh, the difference being that, you know, KD would be the guy shooting in theory right. with the stagnancy. I do want to just make sure we understand, because I love your point about Beal not screening anybody. And what I've always made a point with in our breakdowns is if you want to get your shooter open, hint – let, make him screen somebody and then pop open. We see that with the Warriors. We see that with the Hawks. A lot of really good shooters on good offenses get open that way. And uh, I've always been a little bit you know, concerned that maybe like, the, the imagination of the offensive uh, system is, it might be lacking there. And, again, he might have got – I guess Brooks could have gotten in there. I mean, John Wall is officially the man. Does he yeah. have that kind of presence? And is he that kind of guy that would be like – no, I don't want to run that kind of stuff, Coach. This is what we should do. Is he that kind of guy? Yeah, he's that kind of guy. I mean, they actually had situations. Now, granted, now this was under Randy Whitman in previous years. There were times where John Wall, even on defensive assignments, said, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to cover this guy. This is what we should do, that he will have input on exactly what takes place. Sometimes it'll work. Sometimes it won't. Um, there was a more of an emphasis towards the second half of last year, uh, I had written something that anger Whitman. Um, I'd reported something about how he needed to be better at after timeout situations, um, end of game situations that you don't fall into John Wall dribbling out the ball while four guys are watching. Because usually what happens, he ends up taking a 20, 22 foot contested jump shot falling away that has no prayer. It happened at the end of quarters all the time. So then there was a concerted effort last year, I think in the second half of the season, where they actually ran some good action to get do a little bit more and get some guys open. And I think now they've kind of fallen back into that. It's, it's a matter of – it becomes a chicken and egg argument, right? Is John Wall pounding the rock too much and these guys are just saying, hey, this is John's team. Let him go and do what he's going to do. Or is it that they just subconsciously do this and they look to him? To create everything is like we're gonna let him do it for us because he's our superstar, and I think it's I think honestly it's a little bit of both sometimes that there are times where Bradley Beal has the hot hand and John doesn't always get him the ball in the right situation, and there are times where I think Bradley Beal gets resigned to well let me just stand here and wait. He had Sam Decker with the Houston Rockets a couple of times 20 22 feet from the basket with not much support behind him, and Bradley Beal just dribbled out the clock and ended up taking a tough shot. He didn't attack his feet, and when he attacked his feet, he actually was able to get to the rim and finish. Uh, wonderful point. That's why I love watching you when you break this stuff down because you're coming from the same perspective as I am, and uh, I, I see all this in, in literally in the – I only watched maybe like 60 possessions, and I see everything you're talking about you know, <laughs> just in that, and you're talking about there's probably 500 half-court possessions so far this year. What you were talking about with Coach Whitman, I mean, I think it's safe to say no one's going to call me crazy when we, if I were to say that Whitman has gotten mad at quite a few writers for writing <laughs> stuff about him. Uh, yeah. In fact, and we've seen it. We've seen some video, I think, with my man uh, Michael Lee. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess my question is, is 
that frustration, he had been there for several seasons. He, they mm-hmm. did run pretty good stuff. I thought last year, I know they're getting a lot of long twos, but I thought there was some good dribble handoff stuff, and yep. there was some motion. So you have to imagine what that anger is at the at you, what you're saying must be bubbling up from this notion of, and I wonder how this plays out with Scott Brooks. Is it? It's, it's the notion that like I just this is all I can get out of these guys, you know, right? Like yep. I'm trying yep. to put stuff in. I, of course, I would want beautiful offense, but this is what we can get in the situation. Yeah, I feel the same way. And you know, look, I had questions coming into the season. Who knew the playbook well enough? And Trey Burke was one of those guys I questioned about his grasp of the playbook based off of some things I saw. And you know what it got revealed to me in that opening game against Atlanta? They lose the game. They come apart at the seams. The second unit's terrible. And Jason Smith said, hey, uh, I couldn't hear the plays. And say, what do you – this is Atlanta. I mean, look, this isn't Golden State. No <laughs> right. Right? And so talked to John Wall. And he was like, yeah, I told Trey he has to speak up. And the narrative kind of developed that – they couldn't hear the call, but I think the real thing, my interpretation is they didn't understand the call. So you have people doing different things on the floor. And I'm not sure that Burke grasped the offense well enough to run some of these play sets and that Brooks is in a position where, yeah, I want to be able to play Trey Burke and give John Wall some relief and do some of these things. But he's very limited in what he can do. And again, um, I mentioned Marcus Thornton as your two guard. I think he's a guy that. If, if Bradley Beal doesn't have it going and maybe the, the primary guy who's backing him up doesn't have it going, you look to Marcus Thornton at the end of the bench and say, let me drop him in for five or six minutes. And he could get hot and get you 20, minutes, 20 points in no time. Or he can do like he did against Houston, do a lot of those first size shots when he comes up the floor and shoot two for 10 mm-hmm. and basically strangle your offense. And so I think the pieces also aren't there in the IQ. I don't see the the IQ from certain guys. And so I'm going to give Brooks a little bit more time because uh, I I think he knows what they have to do to be successful. I don't know if he thinks, I don't know if they can grasp fully and and maybe he's limited with what he can teach at this point. I think they got to make a big move uh, at some point this season to loosen those reins. They need another shooter on the floor because as long as they don't have another shooter, Bradley Beal is going to face these kind of coverages repeatedly all season. Yeah, well, you know what? What I my take on offense tends to be, you know, what I'm seeing on with their offense is, you throw it there, and then you go there, and then you pass it to there, and then you have to go there, as opposed to like you know other kind of offenses, which is, uh, you know, if you go there, then I can do this. If you do that, I can go this. And if you do that, they have three, four options with every catch and every place where the ball goes. Right. And it looks like, you know, and maybe that's, again, it's a new coach, new system, all these different things, uh, that they're just sort of rote, you know, trying to yep. run these very basic, like, you know, I, you know uh, without a lot of uh, options out there. I mean, yeah. does that seem like what you're seeing out there? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to tell you one other thing I don't see either from these guys. I see situations where late in games, and I think this was in Memphis as well, where they tried to run a pick and roll. They tried to run a pick and roll. I think it was a side pick and roll with Bradley Beal, and I can't remember who the big was. Uh, it might have been Gortat. And what happened was James Ennis, basically, he didn't blow up the screen, but he pretty much anticipated perfectly. And what they started to pick and roll, literally, I thought they were near the half-court line. I mean, near near the sideline and the half-court line. So they get into the play late because of Ennis' defense. He chased Beal across the floor. Then... You started out so high, the shot clock's running down. That was a case where I thought improvisation on Bradley Beal's part, which you got to say is this. Man, they are extended so far. Look how far. Oh, John Wall is to my right. 
un, un, unguarded, just get out of the play. Just audible, just call it off, cut, pass it to reverse it to John, and he can and he can try to attack the basket from that weak side. Maybe you draw some help, and he can kick out to Otto Porter, spotting up in the corner for an open three. To me, that's a better way to read the game instead of saying, "Well, we got to run this play no matter what." When mm-hmm. there are other options, I don't see that improvisational thing from them the way you do from other players that sometimes the play call of what you guys are going to do. It was a great idea going in. The defense snuffed it out. Now you just got to act on your own and say, wow, John Wall is in space. If I get him, just swing him the ball and just let it free, just freelance and let's see what happens. And I don't see that a lot from them. Sure. I mean, I think that's what, you know, that's playing basketball. That's sort of, you know, reading and reacting to the, to the defense. And it takes, you know, time and it takes a lot of sort of patient teaching. I certainly think that Scott Brooks has the patient teaching gene mm-hmm. uh, and he can do that. But, you know, what I've seen in the past is that there just doesn't seem to be enough. Like, like my, my, um, my uh, example would be, you know, when Tony Parker first got in the league, he was wild. He'd take crazy shots. He had no idea how to play with five men on another four other yeah. guys. And Popovich, I mean, you know, you don't have to do it that way, but he – just destroyed him for two years, and then he finally got it, and then he was a terrific player. So I feel like that didn't really happen, let's say, right, with, with, like, with Russ, for instance. Like, they right. let him be himself, and they let him do his stuff, and he never quite progressed into a, a different level. He's amazing. He's great. I don't want to you know, imply he's not incredible. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we see that there, there could have been a Popovich-style influence to get it to a different level. So that's the other question is, is that going to happen? Because I think that, you know, Beal should be the starting two guard, be coming off screens and really causing a lot of havoc for the defense there. And then he should just be the backup point guard. When Wall goes down, let Beal run the show. And then maybe the, together they're out. To, they're, they're both out on the bench for the, the most limited amount of time you can imagine the rest of the whole game. But, yeah. um, but, but you know, otherwise, I don't know. I don't, is Trey Burke going to be the guy that's going to be able to do it for them? I don't think Burke's going to be that guy. That's going to be Sadoransky. I think okay. where they had, I think where they've had some success, uh, where they have played well during stretches, is when they've worked in Sadoransky, and they've had a three guard lineup, right? And they've gone with Sadoransky, Wall, and Beal. Uh, and then when they would sub, when Scott would sub, he wouldn't sub out. Um, he would sub in Marcus Thornton for Beal, so he keep Wall and Sadoransky out, and Otto Porter will play at the four. And Otto Porter's most productive offensive games in his career has come playing as a stretch four. Really, he had his best game. La- he had his best game scoring wise last season when they when they won in Dallas. They were shorthanded, didn't have hardly anybody to play, and Otto played the four spot. And he gave the Dallas Mavericks fits. He had 28 points in that game. He played. He's played well from the stretch four spot here. So I'm thinking maybe some three guard lineups. Otto at the stretch four a little bit more. That maybe you can have some more success because Otto moves so well off the ball. If you put a really big, like a Dirk Nowitzki four on him, you know Otto moving off the ball is going to kill a guy like that, right? Huh. And, okay. And and he they've had success with that. I thought Whitman got away from that. He saw something last year when he had all these injuries, and he had something. And I don't think he went back to it enough. He went back to what he had been doing previously, and I thought he had something. I think Brooks may have to end up going to Sadoransky with two other guards uh, and putting Otto at four a little bit more often. And the other big thing, too, with the with – the, you know, we haven't talked about the defensive side of the ball. I think Jan Mahimi, whenever he plays, is going to impact – is going to impact him on the defensive end in a way where maybe – they hold some of these teams to less than 114 points a game, which may, maybe in theory, may, you know, they're going to be giving up fewer points. 
But maybe also when Marching Gortat isn't playing as well as he should, you have another option, another big man who can screen and who can do some other things that, you know, I think this when this team's defense is better, its offense is better. When its defense is bad, its offense gets bad. Sure. I mean, it's demoralizing when the team scores on you and scores on you and you start, you know, yelling at each other and next thing you know, you're not moving the ball. You know, you mentioned Sadoransky a few times, and so I feel like maybe a lot of the people listening don't know who this guy is. So, you know, and, and briefly, as I'm looking at the lineups, you know, the top, it's, again, the tiniest of sample sizes, like two games or just one game. But when you look at that, there's a, there's a little bit of an inkling here. The, the lineup you're describing with, you have Beal, Sadoransky, and Thornton. Sort of, I guess Thornton and Beal could be the backcourt, and Sadoransky being like the, the small forward, and then Otto Porter at the power forward and Gortat at center. There's that small ball you're talking about. You know, it's done very well in a couple games uh, already. Mm-hmm. And so tell us, who is Sadoransky, and what do you see him developing into? Now, Sadoransky, look, his confidence has been there from the first day of training camp. Um, and you can see it. And it's not a cockiness. He knows he belongs. Um, Sadoransky has the IQ. The one thing I was the biggest, I was most surprised about, because I didn't see him as much as maybe some other people may have, um, was that his defense. That's where I was the, the biggest surprise. You, you always think of guys coming from Europe who don't have the NBA experience, going to be maybe offensive heavy and not as focused on defense. His defensive IQ to me, uh, can be can be as good as what he can do on offense. He's not the kind of shooter that's going to make defenses respect him. They lay off of him and let him shoot. He hasn't displayed that range yet, but he moves off the ball well. He's like a he's like a a point guard version of Otto Porter, six seven, knows when to fill, knows when to clear out. Uh, he sees two steps ahead, and I think that's why you put him on the floor on with Otto Porter. And you have some really good movement. It just naturally happens because he reads things so well. Um, and, you know, I, I, and he's he plays below the rim. But don't be fooled because Sadoransky's athleticism is off the charts. And at 6'7", I'm going to tell you one thing he also did very well early in the season when I saw him play. He got on the court. And I think he was defending um, uh, from Atlanta, Dennis Schroeder. Schroeder was able to get to the rim against John Wall quite a bit. He's actually been able to do that quite a lot throughout his career because John gambles too much. Schroeder missed two layups because of Sadoransky's position defense, tracks him into the lane, and he basically bothered him at the rim, and he missed the layups. Those were automatic layups for Schroeder before. So I see value in Sadoransky as much on that end and with the ball movement on the offensive end. So um, when talking with, uh, with Coach Brooks, is this the, 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 the goal here is to continue? He's not playing hardly any minutes, so is that going to keep increasing? Is that the idea? Yeah, it's gonna, that's going to keep increasing because they, they stuck with Trey Burke the first three, three and a half games. And what's happened is the offense and defense is so bad. And I was asking Scott Brooks before Sadoransky started to play, I asked him, I said, uh, about, you know, what's going to take for him to get on the court. And if you really read between the lines, and I have a habit of doing this a lot with coaches, he wasn't saying if this happens with Sadoransky, he's going to play. It was always win. So I think the expectation, he knew all along that Sadoransky was going to be that guy. I don't think anybody, and myself included, thought it would it would come this soon. You thought Burke could hold down the fort a little bit to Sadoransky kind of learn the system. And I don't think they're in a position with the start they've had that they can wait. Yeah, and I always felt like, why, why wait? You know, at this point, I mean, I guess let's talk about the, the end, end game here, where they're going to finish, because 
Um, I'm not so sure they had like the hugest hopes uh, in the beginning of the year. Actually, fill me in on what they thought, and now let's give me your ideas on where you think they're going to end up being. I asked, I asked Ernie Grunfeld. I put him on the spot. He came on the air with me one day, and I said, are you a playoff team or not? And he said with no hesitation, absolutely. Now, John Wall believed the same thing. Bradley Beal believed the same thing. I thought this was potentially being optimistic, 42 to 43 wins if all things went you know, if Bradley Beal had an all-star type of year, that sort of thing. Like, I thought they could win 42 or 43. But that was, a ve- that was a very small margin of error. And I don't know if that gets you into the playoffs this year. It took 44 to make the playoffs a year ago. Huh. Uh, so they believe they're a playoff team. And I think that's why they're a little bit caught on their heels. Because the, the biggest thing I'm worried about with these guys is when they start going downhill – they go downhill, <laughs> right? When the season, I go back to last season, they lost that nail biter when Paul George hit those free throws to Indiana at the very end of the game. They go on that three game load road trip, losing an overtime to Portland, and they get then they get obliterated in Utah and Denver. And that stretch of games, you know, I was told at the time, that's where Randy Whitman got fired because all of them checked out, even though they mathematically had a very good chance to make the playoffs. So I think right now, you know, I went in saying 42 games, maybe an eight seed. Right now, I'm saying, um, right now, based on what I see, I'm looking at another 40 to 41 win season. Um, look, this team is only going to go as far as John Wall and Bradley Beal perform, right? Bradley Beal can't have the 13, 14 point games with the empty stat lines, after, you know, the not getting to the free throw line, not doing anything off the ball, not getting the rebounds. Look, there's no reason why Bradley Beal with his athleticism shouldn't be getting you four or five rebounds a game as far as I'm concerned. He has a lot of stat, stat lines that are empty. And if he doesn't perform like a $128 million guy, I don't think it's a playoff team. I think it's contingent. I think John Wall is definitely going to deliver. We know what we've seen from him. But is Bradley Beal going to be able to do the same? Do you feel like, I mean, because you hear whispers, and I don't get a chance to watch the the Wizards all the time, but there are the whispers of, like, sort of empty stats in what John Wall is doing. Because they, they jump out of, off the page when you look at them. You know, 20-some points a game, 10 assists a game. Uh, you know, it's just, that's a lot of production. But, you know, the winning isn't there. Uh, granted, there's roster issues. So do, are there integral issues with, you know, the way John Wall is performing out there that might hinder them in getting to the playoffs? Well, look, the biggest thing that I can say about Wall is there's two things. Number one is turnovers. Just They just stay way too high. I thought his turnover numbers were going to come down a little bit this year because he was supposed to play off the ball a little bit more with Bradley Beal running offense. And he does play off the ball, I think, a little bit more than I recall seeing him. But I, I still would like to see him off the ball a little bit more and being able to attack uh, from the corners. But um, – he he makes a lot of risky passes in, in difficult situations. There was a other night against Houston uh, where he made – if he would have just made a traditional bounce pass to Otto Porter, he would have had a layup in the game. Instead, he did something fancy and it ended up being a turnover. He has a tendency to do that a lot. But I think the biggest thing with John is his defense. My biggest criticism of this team, of how they played in the first two games of the season, um, was uh, their perimeter defense. Uh I talked about Dennis Schroeder a minute ago in Atlanta. He got in the lane repeatedly. And so what happens is, of course, Marching Gortat steps up to help. Dwight Howard sneaks in from the backside and gets, what, 16, 17, 18 rebounds and easy putbacks. And now you have a guy like Dwight getting you 20 and 18 or whatever it was against the Wizards because the perimeter defense, in my opinion, was was the problem. I go back to – look, you go back to that Atlanta Hawks game. I don't even remember game five that they lost in the playoffs 
when Al Horford had that putback dunk. They came out of the Wizards came out of a timeout. Wall was defending Dennis Schroeder. And what happens? He gambles for the steal. Schroeder gets dribble penetration. Wall's able to block it from behind, and everybody lauds it as a great play. It was a great recovery, but the problem is the defense collapsed, and Nene had to block out Paul Millsap and try to block out Al Horford swooping in full speed, and he got the mm-hmm. putback dunk. And I had a lot of people come to me and say, that was Nene's fault. He should have had that rebound. Well, you don't break containment. Schroeder is about a 30% shooter from that spot on the floor. Why do you gamble? If he takes the shot and hits it, you live with it. And that's what I'm saying in terms of Wall's defense. I think he's a good defender, but it's to me, I think sometimes in certain situations, the judgment goes. And that's probably to be said for a couple of the guys on the team. Yeah, I mean, I even caught it on the offensive end where uh, I don't think it was Otto Porter. It might have been uh, cut. They got a they got a turnover in the backcourt, and now like I think uh, Beetle was streaking to the basket, and he tries to underhand flip it to him. Yes, it gets yes. deflected. They get it back and actually shoot the ball and then miss. So it just looks like a regular possession, but that should have been a two yes. point layup right away. Then, then the crowd's into it, and now they got something going or whatever. And so yeah. like those are the things that would drive me batty. And then you know, and then certainly yeah, the gambling stuff on defense. When I mean, because the thing is, he is so quick. And he should he could keep people in front of him and just make life miserable for them if he doesn't just try and go for it. I suspect he just maybe he gets a little bit antsy and it's like you know what I've done this for five seconds I gotta I just gotta do something I gotta make a play. And yeah. sometimes sometimes not making the play just holding a position obviously is, is the more effective thing, especially over yeah. eighty two games when you want to just keep him on the lane, you know, forcing the shoot from yeah. the outside. Um, and you know, as far as uh, big men, I mean, besides Gortat, it feels like that he's the only traditional big man they really have that's going to play, right? Yeah, right now because you know Mahimi's about another. Right. Yeah, he's about another two to three weeks away, probably three weeks away from having a shot at playing after coming off that left knee surgery. I think. Yeah, look, I look. I think it's going to be really interesting if he comes in, and let's say you see a market improvement in the defense because, you know, there's always been this uh, this clashing between the guards, namely Wall and Gortat, over defensive coverages. Um, their 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 problems covering the pick and roll, and this has gone back for several years of you know when to do what at certain situations. They they always seem to be on different pages. They'll play well during that playoff run against Atlanta and Toronto, two teams that had killed them with pick and rolls. They played incredibly well. They played really disciplined. They locked in, and I, I thought, wow, okay, they figured this out. They've turned the corner. That's now the thing of the past. And now, I see some of the same problems that they have. I mean, they have trouble with Boston because of Isaiah Thomas pick and rolling death. They can't keep him out of the lane. And if you go back to what happened against the Houston Rockets this season. I actually went to Scott Brooks uh, and uh, just went up to him uh, after he finished talking to the media. And I'll run stuff by him like, this is what I see. What did you – I said, were you guys showing correctly? They was, He said no. And I said, okay, I was confused because I saw different things. He's, he said, look, we wanted to, 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 to long arm that pick and roll due to contact, to stop James Harden from being able to turn the corner and get – and I saw Gortat – botch that i saw markeith morris botch that repeatedly but then i saw them do it correctly and then you saw a situation where markeith morris switches with john wall on a pick and roll and morris is on his guy and for whatever reason because ryan anderson ryan anderson spaced to the other side of the floor morris stayed with harden wall who was originally guarding harden 
goes over to basically say, let's switch back. You can't leave Ryan Anderson. <laughs> you can't leave Ryan Anderson at that arc, and he killed it. And Anderson made five of eight three-pointers to 23 points in that game. So it's it's that sort of thing. Like, okay, do we not know what's – do you know what a contact show is? Why is this guy doing it, that guy not doing it on James Harden? And Harden was getting into the lane, and he was making assists so easy on kickouts that – I don't think they should have even been called assists. They were too easy mm -hmm. to people spotting up in the corners. And it's the defensive side of the ball where I think they get so disconnected and they start butting heads. I think it carries over. And I don't know why, As I don't know from a coaching perspective, why is something like that so difficult for guys to stay on the same page with? It blows me away. Well, that, that speaks to, you know, I've had conversations with, like, Tom Thibodeau and Dave Yeager about this. And, you know, Thibodeau plays all sideline screen roles the same way. He ices them and forces the ball handler away from the screener no matter what. And you know what? You know what KISS stands for, right? KISS? Yeah. Keep it simple, stupid. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Right, <laughs> so it's right, right. like, you know, you hear Thibodeau yelling it. You hear the Noah, Joe Kim Noah be yelling it. They, yeah. Ice, ice, blue, down, whatever you want to call right. it. And so it becomes a real mantra for them and real easy to guard on the sideline. Now, up on top, it's different. And there's, you know, because then you start talking about, uh, you know, when you talk to an NBA coach, he's like, yeah, there is 14 different ways for each position to guard the, the pick and roll. I'm like, why is it that complicated? <laughs> and even like when I was talking with Jaeger a couple seasons ago where he's like, yeah, we will ice some of these and we will head others and we will you know blast others and I'm like I don't know in real time and you know how fast these games go it just seems like a recipe for disaster and I think yep. that Thibodeau that's what he had discovered was like you know we're just going to play it the same way we're going to have consistency of effort and, and execution and then you know just throw it to the basketball gods we'll, we'll probably win more games than we won't because we'll be on the same page yet other coaches don't seem to be able to do that as well yeah, and it's, you know, like I even go back to, for instance, last season, I remember um, Portland Trailblazers came here and on the very first play of the game, the Wizards blew a coverage, right? So it was it was kind of simple. One of the players was telling me afterwards, I said, how did you guys not realize that uh, when uh, I think it was one of the Plumley guys was he was like 15 feet away from the basket and Gortat. He was, I think he was running a screen roll or something with Dame Lillard, and he did a handoff. And Lillard just swooped right in and gets the layup. And I was like, why, why wasn't Gortat there to contest? He was too far up on, on, on uh, Plumlee, and the threat, in that hand, the threat in that situation is obviously Damian Lillard. He didn't send the ball to where it should have been, and he wasn't in position to contest. And so one of the guys said, we didn't study, we didn't study the scouting report. And I'm like, do you even need a scouting report to know what you should do in that situation? Like, I, I, I it, it blows me away that some things that we see from the outside looking in is so simple to to address and fix. Like, I, some of these problems are just between the ears, and I do believe, I believe you're right. Like, some things are just better left simple. The one thing that Whitman, when he found a little bit of success last year when his team was having problems, he tried to simplify the coverages because he said they were confusing too much in certain situations and when they did play well for certain stretches they simplified the defensive coverage when you're in a situation you do this we do that and that's it instead of all of these options because i think some of these guys got confused and it's i don't know would you rather damian lillard attacking the basket with the basketball or would you rather plumley taking a 15-foot jump shot i know what i would do but they had it but 
they were overthinking stuff too much. And I think there's something to that. Yeah, I mean, I think I would rather have five guys moving together. And that's the key here. When you see ice coverage blown because the big man's hedging and the, the guard is sending him to the baseline, that's a straight line drive of the basket for a layup. And, uh, and it, it's just, it, it does boggle my mind. I think that sometimes they do overthink a lot of these things and uh, have all the jargon and have all these different things. And next thing you know, like I, I, these are smart players. Even, even the players you might not think are like smart per se, you get to the NBA, you have a vast knowledge of like a lot of different concepts. Uh, but at, in, at game speed against a Damian Lillard, geez, you know, what are you going to do? You have to just you know, contain and play that you know, uh, the best way you can and not be on uh, different pages. Speaking of which, and you mentioned the, you know, the handoff action, because uh, that's what just dragged my memory is I don't think I saw hardly any handoffs uh, in their offense. And right. I'm a big proponent of those because it's kind of a moving pick and roll, basic moving screen for pick and roll. And if you look at Synergy, I just called it up here real quick. They are actually, you know, uh, 28th in the league in handoffs, which actually, you know, they're only charting when they result in a shot or a turnover or whatever. But yeah. still, uh, they're a long way off from, you know, the, the better teams that are running better offense. And so, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you could kind of whisper in Scott Woods here, hey, how about some more handoffs for us? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, yeah, they, they need to – it's just it's just it becomes predictable when – you know, I was talking to Tony Massenberg who does studio work for us who played in the league for about 15 years and played won a championship with the Spurs. And he and I were talking um, in the green room one day about that they, they – John and Wall and Gortat are so good at the pick and roll that they do it sometimes to the exclusion of some of these – all of these other options that they have. And you don't see – yeah, we he actually – we mentioned dribble handoffs. Uh, different things they can do. I mentioned flex action earlier. Um, they, they 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 get really predictable, and I love I love the handoff action because it looks pretty simple. But yeah, you pretty much are able to. I mean, didn't Al Horford when he was in Atlanta did that quite a bit with Jeff Teague? Oh yeah, and he was he was great at handing the ball off and then constantly moving into your path to not let you get back to the, the ball handler. And But the key here is is that the ball handler is catching the ball almost at full speed. And exactly. the pick and roll is not that way. You have to kind of generate it from the, from a stop. So that's the difference. That's the fun part about pick and roll, about dribble handoffs that I love so much is that, you know, and if you do it right with the ball handler, he's, yeah, heat seek missile right at the defender. He yeah. has to go around because if he doesn't hand it off to him and the defender runs into him, it's a foul. He can't just run right into the, the guy handing off. So, um, you know, it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a what they're running on uh, the Wizards when I look at the, what their offense is and how they yeah. run it. And uh, I'm anxious to see, like, just I want to get a bigger breath of it, but I, sus- I suspect that one, my, one suggestion I would probably end up saying is, is they, they just need more of this kind of action because what the best offenses do, no matter what it is with whatever system they run or whatever, is they get their players running full speed on the catch often and that's what you need and that's what i definitely think what we're seeing in stagnant emotion is they're not running a lot if you look at how, how uh, there's that stat on uh, the nba stat side that talks about uh how much how much mileage teams run you know on the, yeah. on the court they're low they're down there as well that, that includes defense too so it's a little skewy, skewed but um i think it shows you something they're not they're not running on the court a lot no they don't they don't it's there, there are times where it's so the the stagnant offense is just so it's 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 so obvious and it's like to the point where doesn't anybody realize I'm standing still <laughs> right like <laughs> yeah. when, when they were okay you're playing against Houston right I was actually talking to one of Houston's coaches um, before the game and I I, com- I made a joke about uh, something it was as a as a reference to defense and he's like oh we're not going to be doing a lot of that the the implication being that we're not a very good defensive team right so. 
I thought I was going to see, aside from Bradley Beal attacking guys like Sam Decker, I thought I was going to see Markeith Morris attacking Ryan Anderson a little bit better. Um, saw a lot of jump shots that, you know, he had missed 17 shots in a row going back to the fourth quarter of that previous game. Uh, they didn't take advantage of Ryan Anderson. They didn't take advantage of James Harden, who falls asleep on the weak side ball watching. Mm-hmm. They never – and even if James Harden tries to act like he's about to get in a posture and do something, it's all a bluff, right? Right. He never, he never follows through. I, I didn't think they exploited him enough. Yeah. Um, and you didn't see him get put in some screen action and make him have to switch or make a decision about what to do because we all know he's very prone to blowing coverages like that because he watches the ball so heavily. I didn't think they took advantage of that, and I didn't think they took advantage of uh, Ryan Anderson. And that's I think that's kind of a reason that kind of explains their offense, the problems that they've had, that they don't – A, you don't recognize personnel in your mismatches. And B, I just don't think they were getting enough movement in general to take advantage of some of these guys. Because even though they got 106 points, if they had done things correctly, I believe they could have easily hit 120 that night. Right. I, I agree. And by the way, quickly looking up the Wizards, uh, they do have an average speed on offense, which is really a cool stat and crazy. And they're, they're 24th in the league in, in how fast their players move on the offensive end. And, you know, talking about exploiting those mismatches, uh, you know, we see like the Spurs are great at it, right? They'll instantly see something that boom, 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 and they get, they get that, uh, that, uh, some sort of action quickly to attack that guy. And the question then is, is, is that like Tony Parker who sees that or Tim Duncan when he's out there back you know, last year? Or is that the coaches who can see it? Or is it probably a mixture of both where they, over the course of seasons, they, you know, they both learn how to recognize that quickly? Because I don't know if it's saying that great of a thing about John Wall, who's running the offense, who, who maybe should be able to see those and attack them. Or is it the bench not up there calling out the play that's going to get them the action to exploit it? Yeah, I, look, I, I think maybe in the first few years that they've had here with under, well, first John's first six years um, under Whitman, maybe it, it's it, some of it goes back to that. Maybe some of the, the issues they've had, maybe the IQ hasn't been developed. Uh, you would think after six years, regardless of who your coach is, you pick certain things up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but part of the reason why they bought uh, Ernie Grunfeld told me he brought Scott Brooks in was because he wanted to improve their development and that sort of thing. Um, uh, the, wanted the IQ to be higher, wanted the defense to be significantly better. And, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think at a certain point, especially if you're Tony Parker and you got Greg Popovich going at you every day, I think you probably get so used to it at a certain point, it becomes second nature for you, yeah. right? Yeah. And I, I don't believe this team has had any consistency with how they do things or any maybe confidence. Um, you know, th- th- there was some uh, confidence issues I believe they had in the coaching staff last year. I, look, to me – Last year, for instance, it was old versus new. The younger players on the team and the older players on the team were on completely different pages for all sorts of reasons. Um, And I think that kind of got in the way, okay? And to Whitman's – the one thing on the knock I gave against Whitman, and I did a couple of reports on this, was he never really addressed those things head on with his players. And I thought Bradley Beal made a very telling comment this this season – he didn't name names, but he says, you know, what's the difference between us now versus then. He says, we have a coaching staff that they talk to you. So I don't have to go through Sidney Lowe in order to talk to Scott Brooks. He said before everybody guards talk to guards, you talk to the guard coaches and everybody was separated. And there wasn't this kind of I, I don't think they've been used to working together all the time. They had they're all on their separate little islands and they had different ways of doing things. And so I think culturally 
it's they have to get used to that. But I would think for John Wall's perspective, when like I said, when you have Bradley Beal who's hot or he has a mismatch, the hell with whatever play that you're about to call, give him the ball, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that I could reach out directly to you and not have to talk to any of your assistants before uh, asking you some of these questions and uh, and getting some real information here. This is terrific. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what's going to happen. It's a young season still. You know, they have their chances. So, uh, you know, we'll have to check in again later on in the season to see how they're doing. Yeah, let's do that. I'd like to catch up with you. I appreciate you having me on. You got it. Thank you so much. And don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, not a channel or a conversation. You in? Are you in, Jay? I'm in. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal art. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. This holiday season, AT&T is giving away $25,000 just for telling them what great LG products you want this year. Stop by a participating AT&T store and snap a selfie holding up the LG products you want to get, like the LG B20 with 5.7-inch HD display and direct TV app to watch live TV. Then share your selfie on Twitter or Instagram with hashtag Here's What I Want Sweeps or upload it to Here's What I Want Sweeps.com for a chance to win $25,000. No purchase necessary. Click the banner for rules and a list of participants. Participating stores.